0: So, our, and I say our, our New England Patriots have come to the end of a historic era. There was a 20 year run of dominant football led by what any clear thinking observer would consider the goats of their profession. GOATS, meaning greatest of all time of their profession. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. If you think about Tom Brady, he won seven Super Bowl championships in his career, six with the New England Patriots, one with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Bill Belichick, who continues, or plans to continue coaching, has won eight Super Bowl championships, six with the New England Patriots, two as the defensive coordinator of the New York Giants, and he um, He has been known to set up defensive game plans to stop the most prolific offenses in NFL history, uh, stopping Joe Montana and the San Francisco 49ers, uh, Machine Gun Kelly's Buffalo Bills, Peyton Manning's Indianapolis Colts, as well as Denver Broncos, the greatest show on turf, the St. Louis Rams, and the, the list goes on with the the prolific game plans. Now, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick both will occasionally pull out all of their Super Bowl rings and and wear them, put them on display to show their dominance. Bill Belichick named his boat eight rings, and he's hoping to change that at some point to nine rings or ten rings or eleven rings. Uh, Earlier in Bill Belichick's career, He kind of poked fun at Marv Levy, the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. He said, I won't be like Marv Levy coaching in my 70s. You won't have to worry about that. However, he since changed his tune as the clock kept ticking and he entered into his 70s and he continued coaching. In one article, he said, I wished... I wish I hadn't said that, he told Dan Shaughnessy. I was probably thinking of what I would feel like. Now there's an actual difference between what I thought I'd feel like and what I actually feel like. That was not one of my better statements. He said, I've learned my lesson on that one. One year at a time, Belichick joked. So the question, just for a moment of our consideration, is why is he still hanging on? at 72, I believe. Why is he still hanging on? Well, he likes coaching. That's definitely one of the reasons. Over the last few years, his sons have been on his coaching staff in New England. And oh yeah, (laughs) he's 15 wins away from being the winningest head coach in NFL history, surpassing Don Shula. There might be some motivation there. He is a Football historian, and it matters to him. Does he want to be enshrined as the greatest record in record manners, the greatest coach in NFL history? Maybe yes, maybe no. We can't really know, but one thing is definitely true he's keeping score, and his reputation matters to him. As we continue our study of the Gospel of John, We keep seeing Jesus demonstrating by His words and His works that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. His ministry is calling forth faith in those that observe. Those that were there physically and those that are reading and seeing his life unfold on the pages of Scripture. He is calling forth for faith. And the result of faith in Christ is that we would have life through His name. So His ministry is calling for faith from us. This Jesus has been declared to be God in the flesh. The Creator of all things. The source and substance of life. He is that which satisfies. He is the One who saves. He is the One who shepherds leading us along. He declares Himself to be the resurrection and the life. He declares Himself to be these things. We see it unfold in the pages of the Gospel of John. The crowds are noticing and the crowds are growing. Jesus distances Himself at times from these growing crowds. But not in this instance. Because now is the time. His time to be glorified has come to its place. Everything is set in place. It's his appointed time. His popularity among the nation was at a peak. His ministry is, as we're reading through, is crescendoing. And in this grand and glorious scene that we're going to read through and think through this morning, we will notice something of his unique and lovely character. I hope as we read and think through this, we will taste afresh this morning how our Savior Jesus is meek and humble and gentle, and that He is peace. He is peace. Let's take a look, please, at our text. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. The whole world has gone after him. As we look at the text, the the first item that is apparent to our minds is this growing crowd. There is an an astonishing amount of people that have gathered together. In verse 9, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to Uh, on his account, but also to see Lazarus. There's this large crowd. Verse 11, it says, uh, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Many of the Jews. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So we see this large crowd, large crowd, many, all of these words. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that it was likely on a Feasts such as the Passover, there could be as many as 2.7 million people gathered into Jerusalem. Talking about a lot of people. The crowd was there for religious purposes. At the end of chapter 11, many went up to the country of Jerusalem before the uh, Passover to purify themselves. And the talk of the town was what's going on with Jesus? Is He going to come? Look at uh, chapter 11 and verse 56. What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? They're talking about Jesus. Verse 9 of chapter 12. They didn't just come to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. But they came to see Jesus. Verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So He's the talk of the town. Not only are there rumblings in the background. Hey, hey, is He, is he coming? Have you seen Him? I hear He's coming. I, I wonder. But now they're hearing, oh, He's coming. He's coming into Jerusalem. Not only are these, the rumblings in the background, now there's actually, in this scene, they hear He's actually there, and now there's going to be some very clear proclamations. In verse 17, those that had seen Him Perform this sign of raising Lazarus, continued to bear witness. So they saw with their eyes the power of Jesus that He raises the dead. They saw with their eyes Him do this and they were telling people, I, I was there, it was, it was incredible. I, they pulled the, the stone away. He spoke these words. And and the dude in in gravecloths came out and they, they unwrapped him. They thought he was gonna reek, but he didn't reek. It was amazing. There's there's a, a testifying. Verse 18. One of the reasons they were haranguing to see Jesus is because they heard about his raising of Lazarus. So there's no surprise. No coincidence to the relation between Jesus allowing Lazarus to perish and raising him. And this appointed time where people are hearing about the uh, uh, otherworldly acts of Jesus. God is lining all of this up for a very specific time. It was such a profound gathering of people that were clamoring for Jesus that the Pharisees they saw this as a daunting problem in verse 10 they're plotting to kill Lazarus so they could undo the tangible evidence of Jesus work and in verse 19 they say you see that you're gaining nothing something's got to be done look the whole world has gone after him they see this as a real threat. Jesus' ministry has come to a grand crescendo. And what we have here is a scene fit for a king. In some ways. And in other ways, it looked different. There is a parade-like atmosphere with these Multitudes of people lining the streets. They're waving palm branches. In other texts, they're throwing clothes in the way of his pathway. And their shouts and chants and proclamations that this is the king, save us now. This is a scene fit for a king in some ways, and in other ways, the One who authored life and spoke the world into existence that held the breath of every single one of the individuals in that scene and every single individual in this room and every single individual looking on in a camera. The One who held and holds Our life in His hands rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This tells us something of His nature. It is another way that you and I are impressed by our Savior. There's a coronation here and instead of Laying it out to the nines with a chariot and royal robes. He has on his regular clothing and he's sitting on a donkey. There's a growing crowd. That's good. And there's proclamation of kingship. Look again at verses 12 through 16. Chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. The next day, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. They have these palm branches. It's a symbol of national pride. It's a symbol of victory. So they, they think this, this is representative of our moment. And they're chanting. And it's amazing what they're chanting. Hosanna! Means save us now, Lord, save us now. They're crying out for their salvation, they're crying out to this individual that has been demonstrating who he is, and they're saying, You are the one who really saves. Following up with Hosanna, Lord, save us now. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a messianic claim. Take a look at Psalm 118 for a second. The 118th Psalm. On some of these wonderful feast gatherings, the people as they approached Jerusalem would be singing the Hallel Psalms, a grouping of Psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. So as you come to the end of that Hallel that singing, heading toward Jerusalem, they would, they would be so acquainted with this expression. In Psalm 118, starting in verse 25. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. You hear Hosanna there. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. forever. This is how they would finish those Hallel Psalms as they would come up toward Jerusalem and it's fresh in their minds and Jesus is coming in and they're saying, Lord save us you are the one blessed from, that comes in the name of the Lord. You're this one. They're proclaiming his Messiahship back in John chapter 12 they're not only claiming him to be messianic and asking for him to save them They come right out with it. You're even the King of Israel. You're even the King of Israel. Their proclamations are are accurate. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah coming in the name of the Lord. And He is, in fact, the King of Israel. Now Jesus had previously avoided Israel being ushered in as king. You'll remember in John chapter six, after he fed the 5,000, he takes he exits stage left very quickly. In John 6:15, the, the scriptures say this, perceiving then, that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. So previously He's avoiding these proclamations of kingship and them trying to make Him king. Here in this scene, Jesus is admitting and welcoming the proclamation of kingship. So much so that in Luke's accounting, and we'll go there in a few moments, in Luke's accounting, the Pharisees say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell, tell all these people to stop. And Jesus said, if they don't do it, the rocks themselves will cry out. And the reason for that is, this is the appointed time. I am who I am. And we have the privilege of looking and observing And those people 2,000 years ago had the privilege of being there on scene. In this setting, he does not withdraw because it's his time. You and I would expect some differences with a coronation riding in on a chariot in royal robes. Not our king. Not our king. He doesn't need rings to prove it. He doesn't need to, to ride on his boat all the rings. He doesn't need to do that. And he doesn't do that. In verses 14 and 15, we're seeing something that God foretold that this was going to take place in this way, that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a donkey and... Later, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the disciples would finally start to connect the dots about Jesus and the the donkey and the the ovation and and the chanting and all that's taking place. They, They would see that these things were written about him and then they happened to him because he's the Messiah. This would take place after Jesus was glorified. The expression here in verse 15 of John 12, here our reading is, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I want for us to, to head over to the or- origin origin excuse me, of this text, which is Zechariah chapter 9. Take a look at Zechariah 9 with me for a moment. The wording is slightly different in Zechariah 9, um, some differences in wording as well as some additional truth that is conveyed, all of which still is mind-blowing for us as we think about the eternal God who has humbled himself in, in such an amazing way by taking on flesh He's already humbled himself to the point of having to be fed by a mother, nursing. He's had to be changed as a baby. He's humbled himself in that he would be fatigued. God, who never tired, experienced what it's like to be tired. God who never thirsted, experienced what it's like to thirst and to be hungry and to experience pain. He's already humbled himself to such an amazing extent. And here we have a demonstration in living color of his humility. Look at Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations, he shall uh, excuse me, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So they would be familiar with this text. They've waited all these years. They see him coming in. They see him now on a donkey. They're thinking, okay, our salvation is here. He's going to break the battle bow. He's going to bring salvation. He's he's bringing in righteousness. He's going to bring into subjection those that have terrorized us. But He comes on a donkey. Meek. Humble. Lowly Jesus, the author of life. His meekness is on display in this scene. Like, just it's just an unfathomable scene. It was time. It was time. Nothing was going to stop this event. Take a look at Luke chapter 19. Nothing was going to stop this unveiling of who Jesus really is. And yet there are things associated with this event that the people would have expected to come next. And Jesus did something different. The people want peace from external sources. Peace from Rome and peace from the turmoil that has circled around them for generation to generation and even unto this day. But Jesus was offering a different kind of peace. We'll get to that in a moment. Luke 19.38 and following. You see the same scene from Luke's accounting. Luke 19.38 saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Stop. <laughs> He's riding into Jerusalem, they're lining the streets. They're waving palm branches. They're throwing the clothes in His pathway. They're shouting messianic and kingship and salvation words. And Jesus looks over Jerusalem and He weeps over it. Verse 42 tells us why. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now... They're hidden from your eyes. The humble Prince of Peace is the peace they need. The humble Prince of Peace is the peace we need. We want something different. I have told you on many occasions that one of my idols, the things that, that really matters to me, is peace. I don't want people squabbling and fighting around me. I don't want people in conflict. And sometimes I'm so desirous of that peace that I become very unpeaceful. I become aggressive, seeking to attain peace. Peace. Because I want to bring it about. I, don't, I want people to be, can't we all just get along? That's external peace. Jesus offers a peace here, within. And a peace here, a peace with God the result of that peace within that results from a peace from God is that we begin to be peacemakers and we sow seeds of peace like James talks about in James 3, 18. But that peace comes not from us and our desire to manage everyone so that we can procure an environment of peace for ourselves. It comes from a God who himself is peace provides peace, and brings forth the fruit of peace through us. The Prince of Peace comes into this scene where the people are haranguing, save us, give us peace from our enemies. But what we don't always realize is that our greatest enemy is within us. We resist and we fight and we clamor, like James tells us at the beginning of James chapter four. "Why are there wars and strivings among you? Are they not from this? that you are lusting and craving from your inner man? That's my paraphrase of James 4:1. Our real problem is inside. Jesus has come to address that. You know He could have come and subdued everyone and everything with his powerful hand. You can call that a forced peace. He could have done that. He's God in the flesh. He could have come into this scene and said, okay, enough is enough. But he did not bring in a forced peace. Instead, he was the peace offering to provide not an external Forced peace, but an internal, relational, eternal peace. He became the peace offering and he offers us peace. Take a look at Romans chapter 5 for a moment. This is the peace that Jesus offers, has offered, and continues to offer to this day. Romans chapter 5, we'll look at a few verses here and then we're going to draw some conclusions. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say we're seeking peace, we're hoping to obtain peace, we're still waiting for peace. He says, when we come to know God by trusting Jesus, we have peace with God. Later on, he tells us that we're standing on that grace. Look down at verse 6. How did Jesus provide this peace with God? He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's that's you and me. That's the people that are in that scene. Oh Lord, save us now. And without saying it, Jesus said, that's what I'm here to do. I've come to save you but I'm going to save you in a far better way than you ever imagined. When we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is to bring peace. And the reconciliation was not with the neighboring countries, it was not the marital conflict or the child conflict or the neighbor conflict about the boundary. It was a conflict that arose from us toward God. We were enemies of God. Here he was holding out salvation to us. And we said, no, we've got this. We'll do it our way. Ain't nobody telling me what to do. And God said, I'm going to hold out my son Jesus so you might come to me in peace. I'm going to rescue you in peace through my son. Who was the offering, the peace offering for us. The crowds had one vision of what salvation looked like, but Jesus came to provide a better and an enduring salvation. So I want to draw a few conclusions from this section. Many people in Jesus' day saw the signs He was performing and believed Him to be the promised Messiah. His works did in fact authenticate his divine nature, and that he was the promised Messiah. And it was evident in time and space those 2,000 years ago. Secondly, these people were excited about the salvation that Jesus could offer them. Thirdly, Jesus was offering a salvation that was far better than they could have imagined. The rescue that Jesus offers is both immediate in its impact and eternal in its impact. Some of the immediate benefits that Jesus brings to us through his rescue are these having our guilt removed. Having our shame removed. Having our condemnation removed. Taken away forever. Guilt is gone. Shame is gone. Condemnation is gone. We receive spiritual life. Life from God. Spiritual life. Meaning we have eyes to see Him for who He is. Ears to hear Him. And a heart to believe Him. The powerful master of sin is dethroned. Where sin once ruled over us unendingly. The domination, the rulership of sin is broken through the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean there's no struggle still. It just means that sin has no right to rule over us. But these immediate benefits are just the tip of the iceberg. It's just a foretaste of what is to come. In making us at peace with God, Jesus provides a confidence about our future. The biblical term for that is hope. A confidence about our future. It's a confidence that we will one day experience the full peace, the full joy, and the full rest that are attendant to who God is. We will experience that eternally, without interruption. Here in this life, we taste it. We taste glimpses of it. Joy, where your heart is like exuding passion exuding uh, a rejoicing, you've tasted that. Maybe during a song. Maybe looking at something that God has made. Maybe while you were reading on your own or maybe while you were worshiping in corporate worship. You've, you've tasted that joy of God and His presence and His care and His love and it's like your heart almost feels like it's, it's overflowing with good. That joy is who God is. fullness of joy at his right hand there are pleasures for evermore without interruption and forever. So the the tastes we have here and now these immediate reliefs and these immediate experiences of of settled rest are Calling to us about what heaven is and what God is and what our future holds for us where we will enjoy them without interruption forever. It is important to remind ourselves that the full experience of our salvation will far outweigh any of the earthbound benefits and any of the earth-binding pain that we experience here and now. We taste and see. We've received a down payment in the person of the Holy Spirit, who allows us to experience in time, in space, a taste of what real love is, a taste of what real joy is, real peace, real patience, real gentleness real kindness, real faith, real self-control. These good things, we taste them here. We will experience them in their fullness in the presence of God. Remember this, heaven is still to come. Jesus came to give us himself and this experience of heaven—that's still in our future. Finally, a final conclusion from our text that I want to draw: those who have believed in Jesus overflow with a declaration to others. Think in that text in verse seventeen. The the people that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, death, from the dead, continued to bear witness of him. Because they saw with their eyes, they couldn't help but tell people what they had seen. Friends, we've received so much, we've been so blessed. And our God is so good. As you taste and as you see, let it mark the way you view the world. Let it mark the way you view your family members and what you experience. May your worldview and my worldview be impacted by the God that we've tasted. And may it also impact our words. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, my God, my strength and my Redeemer. We want people to see and hear and taste as others see the impact that God has made on us May they come running to say, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the way you have loved us and demonstrated your love so clearly. Your love continues to be demonstrated toward us in what you have done in Jesus Father, as our hearts are often prone to do, we wander and forget how good you are. Renew afresh within us a confidence in your love and kindness and mercy, humility and goodness toward us that we would taste and see and that as we've tasted and seen, Others would then taste and see your glory of what you've done for us as we show them Christ and as you, who ultimately needs to, show them Christ. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.